politics. And so I've got a, an echo there. While I, while I hardly agree, uh, it's not helpful to use religion for political gain and nor to use politics for religious gain. So I would agree in some of those aspects. I, I told her that it's actually impossible to do that. To divide the two. To divide religion and politics. And, and she was perplexed. That was like a new thought. Really? Um, but she was already doing the very thing she was opposing by telling me uh, that we shouldn't mix these because that was based on a worldview. It was based on really a, a religious view, a view of the world. And, and everybody has a worldview. Religion is really just, uh, ultimately, it's, it's really just about worldview. It's what we believe. It's what we believe about our origins. It's what we believe about our purpose. It's what we believe about the nature of our existence. That's, that's your worldview, and religion is, is you know, an a- aspect of that. We all have those views. And politics itself, actually, is merely the outworking of that particular view. That's what it is. So, it's impossible to do what she was saying. Like I said, she herself was doing that because she had this perspective that was dictating that, no, you should separate these. She had, I don't know what her perspective was, but my guess is she had a, a view, a worldview, that somehow the sacred and the secular can be divided somehow. And you can have the, the secular realm where you do politics and then you've got the sacred realm where you do religion. And Scripture never teaches that. Uh, God's Lord of everything. And every aspect of life, He's to rule and reign over. And so they mix together. But it just goes to show that we live in this world where there's just all sorts of ideas out there. We live in a crazy mixed up world. There are all sorts of ideas about who we are and why we're here and what we're here for. There's many competing worldviews. There's as many competing worldviews as there are spam emails in my spam folder. There's all sorts of ideas that are out there and they just kind of clamor for our attention. Our society is divided. It's fragmented. It's confused. And it's seeking somehow to find some common ground and and ultimately is not able to do that. And we ourselves, if we're not careful, will be caught up in the same storm. Confused and wondering. Well, the book of Genesis was written for just such a situation. This book was given to the people of God as they departed Egypt. As they departed this very dominant, powerful culture that was thoroughly pagan in its worldview. Strongly influenced by a pagan worldview. And they were entering uh, into this area geographically that was going to be a crossroads of culture. It was going to sit right in the middle of all the major world powers and the major world religions. Egypt on one side. The Canaanites there, the Hittites, the Babylonians, the great empire of Babylon, and later the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans are all going to surround them all with their different ideas about how we got here and why we're here. There were many worldviews that were out there. Many explanations. Many stories that would account for, for our origins and our purpose. Not unlike today, right? And amidst this swirling storm of culture, God wanted to establish for His people, His covenant people, an oasis of truth that they could go to. He wanted them to know the true meaning of life. He wanted them to understand who He is and why we are here and what it all means. And so He gave His people, in its original context, the book of Genesis, and really the first five books of the Bible, given to His people who were leaving Egypt 
and coming into this crossroads of culture. And He's given us this book through them. And we find ourselves in the same situation, don't we? We live at this crossroads of culture with all these views, and yet God's sure Word is here for us saying, this is truth. And this wonderful book and this chapter in it, chapter 1 and a little bit into chapter 2, teaches us that God alone has created everything. God alone has created everything. He ordered and He filled everything. And He set mankind over what He had created. And it was good. It was very good. And the implication here, by the way, is not just to observe that, but it's a call to worship. There's an implication here if God is the Creator and all that I see around me is created by Him, He's created these things and filled it and He set us in place to rule over it and its original, in its original form it was very good, then I as His creature have an obligation to Him to live in His creation, to ultimately live for Him, to worship. And so I want to say in a single sentence really what I think this section of Scripture teaches us. This It's this, we owe all worship to God. All our worship to God because He has made all things. So with that in mind, let's take a look at this passage and learn from God's Word. Let me pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your care for us. We thank You for Your care for Your covenant people way back when Israel left Egypt and they needed to hear these words here. And we thank You, Lord, for all through the ages You have cared for Your people with these truths. And Lord, for Your care for King of Grace Church this morning through Your Word. And we pray, Lord God, You would capture our attention. Our minds would be drawn to these truths. Our hearts would be affected. Our lives would be transformed by Your Word. Help me to so proclaim Your Word. To serve You in this, we ask. Help us to listen as well, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear God's Word. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so, God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights, in the expanse of the heavens 
to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. God's Word from Genesis 1 and 2. This wonderful passage of Scripture calls us to worship. It calls us to worship God who has made all things. And I want to take time just to walk through this passage. First, I want to just talk about how we are called to worship Him because He alone has made all things. And that's just in that first verse of chapter 1. Genesis 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That one verse is so profound just by itself. That one verse contains more truth that is both satisfying and useful than all the volumes of philosophers together. That one simple verse that gives to us the nature, the purpose, and and the personalness of our existence in that one word. Let me explain. First, it says, in the beginning. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. That's just a profound statement just there. In the beginning. What it's saying is there's a beginning. There's a point at which things were not. There's a beginning. And there's a, there's a pathway. There's a trajectory to history. There's a beginning. It isn't circular. There was a point where things were not. There isn't this... Um, we, we are not just dust in the wind. We're, we're not just a remote statistical pr- probability that just all of a sudden happened. We're not the product of endless cycles of expansion and collapse of multiverses. We're not all those things. We're not random. We're n- it's not a cycle that goes on and on. We just happen to exist. That's all we know is that we exist. There's all sorts of theories out there right now about origins. One of the theories is the multiverse. There's these expansions and collapse, collapses that go on and on and on, and after a gazillion of those, finally something happened. As improbable and impossible as it is. Contrary to those particular theories is Genesis 1.1 in the beginning. There's a beginning. There's a place where there is nothing and then there is something. That's profound. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, who? God. Not in the beginning, the planets. Not in the beginning, the universe. Not certainly in the beginning, mankind. In the beginning, God. That's profound. And I, I know we've probably read that. Many of us have probably read that over and over. But that one statement is huge. Just that alone. In the beginning, God. That changes everything. That changes everything about how we think about our existence. Everything that we think about the universe. Everything that we think about how we came to be and why we exist is altered by that statement. That's a profound statement. And if you follow that statement, you follow a certain trajectory in your worldview that's radically different than all the other alternatives. If it's in the beginning, the universe, then okay. So that's, we just exist. There's, there's nothing there. I think effectively what our society tends to do it's, is they, it's in the beginning of the universe, but ultimately it's in the beginning of man. So that the universe somehow, things, the conditions were, were right. This, this particular fluctuation of the multiverse was right. We got people, and now it's us, mankind. And, and, and so man ends up being the measure of all things, right? Mankind is the ultimate, the ultimate center of the universe. And that particular idea out there. And from that flows all sorts of things. Humanism is really what that's about, but it's, it's a form of humanism that, that is not theistic. It's a secular humanism, if we can say that. <clears throat> and actual humanism has its origins in Christianity. If you study history, um, it, the, the Western version certainly of humanism was, was a Christian humanism. It was a, a love for people that came out of God's love for, for us. Certainly there's a, there's a humanism that came out of Greek thought and so forth. But the humanism we know is, and the humanism that, that really changed Western society was a Christian humanism. And, and, and so that started that way, but then when you take God out of it, when you, it's in the beginning of the universe, now you just have humanism, and you go to all sorts of places with that philosophy. Certainly there can be good that comes from that. I'm not saying there... 
There isn't. But there's no stable ground for that. If man's the measure of all things, then, then okay, that's what is truth. Well, it's what we say it is. There's, it's a slippery slope. And, and I would submit to you that, that a lot of the things that we see in society, where we see our society going, comes from this idea that man's the measure of all things. Some of the atrocities we see, great atrocities, come from a humanistic view of the world. If man's only the only measure, then let's do something about it. So thus communism, thus fascism. Some of the laws that have been passed in our country come out of this idea. When there's no lawgiver, then law is malleable. We change it. And so marriage changes, ethics change, when when a child becomes a child changes. All those things are changeable. But scripture says in the beginning. God. And that idea, that truth, alters our worldview and captures our attention and calls us to the reality that He has made all things. He's the pre-existent One. He existed before there was anything in the beginning. He existed. And He's the One who made all things. So it belongs to Him. So we belong to Him. And so our, our nature, our existence, our reality is all anchored in Him alone. And we owe Him all things, because all things come from Him. That changes everything. Do you, does that make sense? Can you, can you see that? And I believe, and I, I would know if, if you understand this, that's functioning in your life that way. You have a different worldview. You approach things differently because of that. And He's the one who got things going. He's the one who created all things. He's the one who sustains all things. He didn't just get things going and back up. He created in a very involved way. And we'll get into that shortly. And He maintains His creation. And, and just with that verse, it, it comes at us and it changes our view. And it calls us to this obligation that it all comes from Him. So I owe Him everything. He's my Creator. I'm the created. I'm dependent on Him. It's not my world. It's not even my life. I am not my own ultimately. I am not the creator of myself. He is. And He has a prerogative over my life and over our lives as the creator. He gets to call what happens because He made me. I don't belong to myself ultimately. I depend on Him as well. There's, There's both those aspects. I depend on Him. He's made me. He's the one who's put us in this situation. He's made everything around us. We're dependent on Him. And so it's an obligation that is both dependence and worship. Really, dependence is worship with the Lord. All comes out of that one verse. I I hope you get that. And I hope you can see how that affects your life in a practical day-to-day level. So when we are walking through our days, if we are Lord of our own destinies and of our own lives and of our own universe, we will approach things a certain way. And in particular, when there are challenges in your life, you will approach them a certain way. You will probably well do one of two things. You will seek to control your life. You will seek to get all your ducks in, in a row. You will seek to make things happen. And you will look to control life. You will look to make everything right. You will feel in that, some of us maybe feel in that like exhilaration. I love to be in control and I love to get things done. But you don't have to go all that long when you're going to bump up against failure and frustration. And you're going to go one of two ways with that. You're going to get angry and bitter. You're going to get depressed. All because you are living in the universe as thinking you're a creator. Thinking you're in charge. Thinking you're the one to get it done. 
thinking that it's about you. And we do this in all sorts of real ways. I know I do it. Every time I look at my to-do list, I do it. I start thinking, i got to get these things done. i got to be Lord over my universe here. I've got to close our pool, but it's got all that green stuff down the bottom. And it's leaking. And I'm not going to be able to get the pool closed in time before I go to Nepal. What am I going to do? I've got to do other things. Our window screens are coming apart. Our lawn is burnt. Our trees need to be trimmed. They're hanging over the house. We've got sinkholes in our backyard. That The paint on my car needs to be touched up. And I can start living in this world where I'm in charge and I've got to get these things done. And it, it makes me either a control freak or anxious or depressed. And I forget. Wait a second. This is not my universe. It's His. He's made me, and He's put me here, and He knows about these things, and, and I am to depend on Him. I'm to say, Lord, help me figure out how to get the algae off the bottom of the pool. I don't know. We've been trying so long. How do I do it? How do I do this thing? It isn't apathy, right? It's not apathy. It's an interaction. It's dependence. And then it also is the ability to say, you know what? You're in charge, Lord. I didn't get it done before I went to Nepal. Okay. I'm okay. You're in charge. You're all, I, I did what I could, and you don't hold me accountable for what I can't do. It's your universe, not mine. It's your pool, not mine. It's your car, not mine. And whatever it might be. And now there are also circumstances, these are all trivial, right? There are times when those the things that are falling apart are not, not pools or cars, but people and families. But the same truth applies. Lord, help. Lord, this is your universe. Help us. Lead us. And we do what we can in Him and then we we trust Him, the One who's made all things. I hope that helps. I hope that helps you see how Genesis 1-1 changes everything in a real practical way. We are to worship Him because He alone has made all things. Genesis 1 teaches us that He indeed has made all things. Everything that exists comes through Him. So let me just walk through the days and what we see in these particular days uh, what's being made, and then the implication. There's actually way more here than I can dig into in a, one message. We could do, actually, we could probably do a 10 week series just on chapter one on the things because there's a lot going on here. Uh, there's a lot that's being taught the, the original audience, the people of God, on their way, on their exodus, right, from Egypt into the promised land. There's a lot of implications, there's a lot of words and things that w- would have spoken to them, and I'll touch on just a couple, but there's a lot here. God's word's like that, it's deep. And so it's always challenging to proclaim it, and teach it without trying to get into everything. But I'll go quickly. The first day, what does He make? He makes light. There's, previous to this, there's no form, there's no filling, there's no light. Things are chaotic. They're just kind of blended together. God makes light. He, it's interesting to note, He doesn't make the sun, He doesn't make the moon, He doesn't make stars. He doesn't say anything about that till later. He makes light. He makes photons. They start bouncing around the universe. He lights things up. It doesn't come from the sun. Light doesn't come from the sun, ultimately. It doesn't come from the moon. It doesn't come from stars. This is a point being made here. Light comes from God. And there will be a day in the new creation where we will not need the sun. Revelation 22 says, "...and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever." This dominant experience of creation, of having light doesn't come from the Son. It comes from God Himself. That's the point here. And God Himself is light. Physically, He gives light. 
Spiritually, He is light. He's light, and in Him is no darkness at all. That's part of the point being made here. Light throughout the Bible represents goodness in the character and life of God. And so on the first day, He makes light, and then He separates light from dark. Isn't that interesting? He sees the light as good. He actually doesn't call the dark good. It doesn't mean there's no goodness in it. But He's, he's making a statement about the light. The light is good. And He separates the light from the dark. Throughout this chapter, he is separating things. What's happened to the people of Israel at this moment in time? They've been brought out of Egypt. They've been separated from Egypt. From the the darkness that's in Egypt. They've been delivered out of that. And now they are called to be light. And so this idea that God creates and separates and distinguishes is, is an aspect of how God operates in His universe that goes way back to the very beginning. And He calls them to be distinct. A distinct people separated from darkness. A people of light. And that's what He's been doing since the beginning. In rescuing His people and delivering them, in His gracious action, He calls them to be separate, to be different. To be the people of God is to be distinct in the world. It's to be light amidst the darkness. It doesn't mean to be isolated, uncaring, people, isolated and uncaring for the broader community, but it means being separated in a real sense from the darkness around us, from the unbiblical aspects of culture, and to so live in culture and and live amidst the darkness to be distinct, to be salt and light, to stand out. So we are to think about our lives and how we live and how what we believe about God changes us. It changes us in our thinking. Because we believe that God made all things. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. So we think differently. But that makes us do things differently too. Our lifestyle, our choices, our relationship choices, our family choices, our career choices, our media choices, our clothing choices, every aspect of who we are is to be distinct, different. It doesn't mean you just you wear a clown suit, right, to stand out. It just means that you think in terms of God being the center of everything. You are to, you are to stand out because God has made all things and it's for Him. So we think differently about how we do things. There's times when that's going to overlap, right? How we do is we're going to look just like the world around us in some ways because the, the way that we walk out our media choices may look the same as far as music choices. I love jazz music. Jazz music, I think, is wonderful. It's a wonderful form of music. It takes a lot of creativity and gift to produce it. I love to listen to it. And I have lots of friends who love jazz. We're going to listen to jazz together. There's all sorts of jazz. But there's some jazz where the lyrics might have certain things in it that I'm, like, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to participate in that because, it, because they're celebrating evil. And so I don't listen to that particular song. And that might be different than my friend. And that might be a chance to talk with them about why I don't like that particular song on that particular album. So there's a distinctiveness, right? And, and this is what God does. He, he separates the light from the dark and, and, and we can think through for us what that looks like and how we live. And the covenant people of God now in Israel, He separated them geographically. We are not separated geographically. We're actually called to be salt and light in the world. And so we are sprinkled about the darkness Shining as light by God's grace. Just some thoughts on that particular aspect of God making light. 
excuse me. Next, God creates an expanse in the midst of the waters, the water called uh, the ocean by us, and the water of outer space, and that's called the sky or the heavens. He creates this form, and in this chapter, what he's doing, he's creating these, these forms, he's creating these spaces. He creates the sky, he creates the sea, he creates the land. And then he populates those spaces with living beings. He creates the land and the vegetation. But then he populates the sky with birds, the ocean with creatures, the land with animals. So he's creating a form and he's filling it. He's filling it with abundant life that is called to be fruitful and multiply. So all these realms are created and then mankind is put over these different realms to rule and to reign. And so on this second day, He makes the sky. And then it says evening and morning the second day. And then the third day, He makes the dry land and He makes vegetation. Um, That's the third day. Now the fourth day, He starts to fill the forms. And so the fourth day, He fills the heavens with lights. There are lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day and night, to be signs for seasons, for days, and for years, to give light on the earth. He makes the sun and the moon to rule over the day and night. It's interesting to note that he does not mention the sun or the moon by name. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it may not be that interesting to us, but if you know the culture that they were in and around, the Egyptian mythologies and so forth, they worshiped the sun and the moon. And God just kind of disses all that by not even mentioning it. They don't even get a mention. I'm not even going to say sun and moon. Just the greater light, the lesser light. And, and the point is, the, these are not entities you worship. I made these. And they're ultimately for you as you rule over cre- my creation. And the same with the stars. The stars barely get a mention here as well. The stars were worshipped. They believed that the stars controlled the destiny of mankind. And, and here in Genesis, it just says, well, the stars are just there for light. And they're to mark the seasons and so forth. And they're certainly glorious. I don't mean to, to diss the stars. They're glorious. And, and we get to learn so much about the stars through astronomy and so forth. It's amazing, actually, to think that, that here in this creation, God is setting the, the earth in the middle of the universe with the stars, that, these vast stars, this, this vast universe that's all around this huge universe that's just as expansive as as it is intensive. It's just as large as it is microscopic. It's glorious. It's huge. All these stars that are light years away ultimately are all put there to be lights for the earth. That's what Genesis teaches us. That doesn't mean it's not worthy to investigate all that's going on out there. It's really fantastic black holes, nebulae, Antimatter, matter, all really cool stuff if you're science type. Wonderful, glorious things. But ultimately, Genesis teaches us that the earth is the center. Now, the earth may not be the geometric center or the mathematical center of the universe, but it is the spiritual, relational center. It's all about what God's doing here on the earth. That's what Genesis 1 teaches us. And God is interested in displaying all His glory here on the earth. It continues. The fifth day. He continues to fill the forms He's made. He says, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the spans of the sky. And He fills the sea and sky with 
all sorts of living things. Wonderful species. Wonderful, beautiful animals. Do you know that there are 230,000 different species of sea creatures? And of those 15,000 different species of fish, 10,000 species of birds in the world. And we're still discovering new ones. I don't know if you guys would like to watch any of the nature shows and stuff they're finding in the Amazon, these new birds and stuff. They're just, and they're all fantastic. I love watching those shows. All created by God. Each one different. Each one possessing amazing qualities, color, size, shape, habitat, behaviors. All designed for their survival and for the glory of God to be put on display. It's, it's just wonderful. I know a guy who studied bat guano. That was what he studied. Obscure thing. And, and not that I'm trying to promote studying bat guano, but I mean, just, just one little aspect. You could talk to this guy and he would probably tell you for hours stuff about this. I don't, I don't know. Actually, it has to do with, without getting into it, <laughs> bats, bats live in caves for a long time. So you can study their guano, their droppings, and study history. So you have years and centuries of guano that you sample and you learn stuff about the climate and all that. And just one little aspect uh, of, of creation. And we can spend years, and I think we will in the new creation, spend years and years just studying God's creation. It's glorious. We had at one point uh, a fish tag with a type of fish called mbunas. They're from Lake Malawi in Africa. They're uh, fish that, they're about that big, but they're amazing fish. Actually, if you are interested in getting a fish tank, uh, my recommendation is get mbunas. They're the smartest and the cleanest uh, freshwater fish that I know of. They're uh, smart. When you go to, up to the tank uh, and they'll, you move your fingers and stuff, they'll swim up to you. They'll, actually, they can identify and distinguish people in the family. So the one they no, person who normally feeds them will get used to that face and stuff. Uh, they're, they're incredibly smart fish. They're beautiful. They, um, they actually are mouth breeders. So after the eggs are fertilized, this female will scoop them up in her mouth and hold them in her mouth for up to three weeks until they're hatched and little fish swimming around in her mouth. She still holds them and eventually lets them out when they're developed enough. Just really cool to watch Mbunas. And I could go on and on about Mbunas. The point here is that God is amazing. His creation is glorious. There's so much to it. It all expresses His glory and His sovereignty. And just the things that He says in this chapter about creation clue us in that He's the author. It's about Him and He rules. Another thing that's here that we may not notice is it says that He created the great sea creatures. And they barely get a mention. But these sea creatures were seen in the mythologies around them as actually greater than the demigods. That in the different accounts of creation and existence, the, the sea creatures predated the gods. And so they were a big deal. The sea creatures were these big forces and God just says, you know, yeah, those things, I made them too. I made them. They exist by me. They exist for me. And He makes all this stuff and He calls them to be fruitful and multiply. By the way, as we've been going through this, you notice the repetition of the days. The pronouncement of the days. It says, there was evening, there was morning, the second or whatever day. And some would say that this is poetic because we don't see a solar day until the fourth day. But it's still pronounced after each period of creation. Each day is marked with evening and morning. Um, and, and that's how the Hebrews would have counted the days along with the day number we see in, in this, the passage. And if you look at Scripture, 
and look through how they understood that, how the original audience would have understood that when you say the evening, the morning, the first day. I believe it was a literal 24-hour day. I think that's how they would have understood it. I think that's what Scripture teaches. I know there are different ideas about you know, how God did it. We look via science. We look and things you know, get dated really old and so forth. And we try to back up the timeline in Scripture and figure it out. And there's a lot of controversy over that. By the way, I'm going to do some Q&A afterwards if you want to stay. If you have any questions about any of this, I would love to entertain any question on this. Um, I have a science background, so I've wrestled through these things. Um, so as we look at those things, people wonder, you know, how could it be you know, only 6,000 years old or whatever? How could it have been created in 24 hours? Um, let me just say one thing. Science is great in terms of observing what is. Science is not great in observing what will be necessarily or what was. It's great at what is, and it serves us well. But it doesn't, we can't go back in time and say this was what was. And we can't do that just in terms of logic and philosophy. Never mind theism. Once we introduce God into the equation, we have basically introduced a supernatural, pre-existent, eternal, all-powerful being, right? And so all bets are off. All bets are off at that point. Because he can do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't have to follow any law that's presently functioning. No matter where we extrapolate or how we interpolate that law. He doesn't have to. So if you're going to grant that there's a deity, then don't argue about how he did it because he can do it any way he wants. Now, with that, don't, I don't think it's wrong at all to investigate with science and try to understand what's going on. So Christians should not have a negative view of science. They should have a very positive view because this is God's creation and, and it's the basis, the stability of the laws he set in place are the basis for science. But we just have to understand, if there is a God, then, then let's not argue about whether it's 24 hours or a million years. Because He just has to say, let there be light. And there's light. With all the apparent age and everything. He does that in Scripture in other places, right? He turns water into wine, does He not? Jesus at the wedding? Wine takes a while to make. You have to harvest the grapes. You have to grow the grapes. There's all this stuff. None of that happened! He spoke and it became wine. And so, so take that to Scripture. So I am, you know, if in the end we get to heaven and God says, no, actually I meant it poetically and this is what it was, okay. But I'm going to take it how I think Scripture teaches it. That's the best, safest bet. And I think Scripture teaches a literal 24-hour day. But that's not the point here either. <laughs> this is because of our modern culture trying to reconcile science and, and faith. And that's not necessarily a bad thing to do, but the intent of Genesis is not to try to settle the scope trial. The intent of Genesis is to get us to understand He's made it all. He created the forms. He filled them. And He put us over that. And He calls us to depend on Him and worship Him. That's the intent here. But if you have questions, I, I encourage you to ask and think, and I'd love to talk with you about that. The sixth day, God fills the earth with animals, 50,000 varieties of animals or more, each unique, each glorious. And God saw that it was good. And He goes on to make man on this sixth day, and it's something different here. Just to pause for a minute in these statements about it being good. It's good. It's good. It's good. After He makes these things, it says 
it is good. God saw it as good. That should clue us in to how we ought to think about creation. Creation in its original form in particular is good. His creation is good. Food is good. Sunny, dry, cool fall days are good. The ocean, the beach are good. Land and animals and trees and gardens, mountains are good. The physical creation, the spiritual creation in its original form in particular is good. And that shapes how we think about our world. There are other competing worldviews out there that would try to separate spirit and physical and say physical is bad. It's evil. It's corrupt or it's lesser. It's a lesser form. But it isn't. It's good. And the final creation will be a recreation of the heavens and the earth. A renewal of the heavens and the earth. And it will be very good in every way. So that affects how we think about stuff. It's good. And it's good for us to enjoy that. We're set here in creation to enjoy His creation. To be worshipers in it. Here though, He makes man and He puts man as the apex of His creation. We should get that from this passage. Man alone is made in the image of God. He's set apart to rule over these domains. The fish and the birds and the animals and the the earth. To enjoy creation and depend on its Creator. To rule over creation for His, in, for His sake. For the Lord. And when He makes man, He says, it is very good. That's profound. It's said it's good so far. When He makes man, male and female, in His image, He says, it is very good. That changes how we think about ourselves. This idea of being made in the image of God and being very good in the original form is what's behind ethics. It's what's behind how we relate to other people. It's why we are respectful of all people. It's why murder is prohibited in Scripture. Because we're made in the image of God and in our original form, it's very good. People in their original form, there's a fall. We're going to talk a little bit today and next Sunday you'll hear more about it. That affects things. That corrupts things. But at the beginning, we are made in the image of God. We still are in the image of God. And in the beginning, we are very good. There should be a high view of mankind from Genesis chapter 1. And it should be a high view of mankind, not just the spirit of men, but the body as well. So the body and the spirit. We are a spirit and a body together. In union together. And in our original form, we are very good. And so that has all implications. How we regard other people. How we respect them. How we treat the body. Sexual ethics flows from this, doesn't it? We treat others with dignity and honor, including their physical bodies. I think the sin of of pornography is denying the image of God and people. and Treating their bodies as things instead of people made in the image of God and, and, and not treating them with dignity and honor and respect and love. Genesis 1 calls us to this different ethic because... We are very good in our original state. We are made in the image of God. And originally we're set in charge to rule over this wonderful creation, to fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion, to enjoy creation, to walk in worship in all things. That's the original intent. But if you are tracking through this with me as we go through it, I'm sure you're you're thinking, whoa, we are so far off that mark, aren't we? Mankind has grown corrupt. We've fallen short of God's intention. 
Romans 1, actually, we can project that. Romans 1, 20-25 speaks of this. It says, For His invisible attributes, speaking of God and creation, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the thing, though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Guys, to live in this creation is to be aware that we have betrayed our Creator. The Creator for the creation. We prefer to worship ourselves, to make ourselves the center of the universe, or to make the things that He's made around us that are intended for good and for blessing to make them central. To worship them instead of Him. And Genesis 1 should be convicting for all of us. Because we live in this wonderful, glorious creation. God's been good to us and yet we are rebels. We've rebelled against Him. This is a convicting chapter. Reminds me of my 16th birthday party. We went out to brunch that day. September 29, actually. We went out to brunch at the Marriott in Newton, Mass. Had a wonderful brunch with coffee, locks, and bagels. Great birthday presents. It wasn't unlike other birthday parties that I had and with very generous parents. The only problem is I had been in jail the night before for drunk and disorderly behavior. I'd been just about incoherent. Um, I had assaulted someone, and then I was tackled, handcuffed, and brought into the station. My dad had to come and get me. My dad, who was normally level-headed, was distraught. I was incoherent. The next morning, my birthday, I sat amidst the kindness of my parents and siblings aware of what a jerk I was and how undeserving I was. They were not permissive. Don't get the wrong idea. But they were gracious. And they still gave me my birthday party and loved me and blessed me. This is how it is with creation. We sit amidst infinite glory and goodness blessed by God day after day. By things we don't deserve. And yet we've spurned them. We've been jerks spiritually with God. We've pursued other things. Drugs, money, comfort, reputation, cheap thrills, illicit sex. Or maybe for you it's nothing that rash. But it's going to be something else. Maybe you just ignored them. Or maybe you're trying to do it on your own. Living life on your terms or, or living your life on your own made-up religion versus how He wants you to worship Him. 
Whatever it might be, we are the same as I was that morning at the Marriott. Living amidst amazing grace and goodness, yet guilty as charged. That's the reality. Genesis 1 should be convicting for us. But it's not the end of the story, is it? He tops His goodness in Genesis 1 by sending His Son into this broken, fallen world to be a sin offering for you and for me. He sent His Son to come and live the life that we knew we should have lived. Loving the Creator, loving His Father, loving others. And then more than that, amazingly, going to the cross to offer up that perfect life in our stead. To die on the cross the death we deserve for spurning our Creator, for rebelling against Him. Paying the penalty for us that we might through Him, through faith in Him, through simple faith in Him, just simply saying, Jesus, I believe You are the Son of God. And I believe You came to rescue me from my sin. Simple faith. A faith that includes turning away from our own solutions and trusting in Him. Just through simple faith, we might be forgiven for the travesty of our rebellion. Whatever it might be. And be welcomed into the family and reconciled to God. Counted as sons and daughters beloved. And transformed and empowered to live now in this fallen creation depending on our Creator. Worshiping Him. And then one day soon when He finishes, when Christ returns, when it's time, enjoying a restored creation without sin, without sorrow, without corruption forever and ever. That's amazing. That's who God is. And the story of Genesis 1 continues through the Scripture and displaying the amazing grace and generosity of God ultimately shown through Christ alone. And so the call here in Genesis 1 and in the Scripture is to come to the Lord and to worship. To thank Him for creation. To thank Him for even more sending His Son. To trust Him. If you've not trusted in Him yet, trust Him today. Put your faith in Him. And learn to worship. Live in worship. For the believer, we're called to worship in this creation. If the band could come up as we close. We're going to close with a worship song. And I just encourage you to worship. I was at the Patriots game this week. First time I've been to Gillette Stadium. Maybe the last. It was a great time. And I saw 70,000 people celebrating. A bunch of guys in tights running down the field with an inflated piece of leather. I mean, we were high-fiving and jumping and hugging people I had never met before. It was a celebration. Nothing wrong with that. Guys, Genesis 1. Romans. The Gospels. Give us every reason to worship with all of our hearts, all of our voices, all of our bodies, all of our lives in every way. So let's finish our time just by standing and worshiping our God as we sing Rejoice. So let's stand together.